I say that? Okay, so we're talking about, we're, we're celebrating this season, we're thinking about the birth of Christ, and one of the things that is, is, is things that people often talk about, often can have arguments about, is, is what I want to address, not just briefly. We're talking about, talking about the virgin birth, this idea of the virgin birth that Scripture gives us, because it's a defining moment in history. You know, God sent Jesus. He sent him in a very obscure way. Uh, in a world that expected power and glory. And we still live in a world that expects power and glory. We expect bangs and big things and huge announcements and parades and all this kind of stuff. He sent Jesus in the exactly opposite way. He came as the least of these. He came as a suffering servant. And I love uh, in, in uh, Scripture in Luke chapter 2, where when the angels come, and they say it in a very particular way, they say, for you today... For you has been born a Savior, and that is Christ the Lord. And it's a very pointed, it's for you. It's the same message in this day and age. For you has been born a Savior, and that is Christ the Lord. It's for you. It's very specific. It's very personal. It's very relevant. And so when we talk a little bit this morning in that, in that thought and thinking about the virgin birth, because it's, it's a sign. It's, a, it's showing that this baby is very special. Uh, something supernatural is going on here. Something out of the ordinary. It's a miracle. And I know, I know in, in talking with people at different times, there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't think that happens. It's impossible. It's ridiculous, right? And um, I want to say this because it, it, years ago, Oxford University uh, started a series, and it's the series entitled A Very Short Introduction to, and it's famous people, and it's famous um, uh, maybe events or discoveries or whatever, and, and it's hundreds of books now, I think. And what they did was they decided to find who was the foremost authority on any specific thing and allow that person to write the book as a part of Oxford University's uh, the, the press, the series that they put out. And so one of them is Jesus, a very short introduction. And it's by a man named Richard Bauckham. Uh, Richard Bauckham, Oxford University. Uh, looked around and said, who's the foremost authority on the life of Jesus Christ? And uh, funny, he teaches at Oxford University. They kind of keep it in-house there. And this is something you can order. It's a short book. It's an easy read. But it is by one of the most foremost authorities on the life of Jesus. Uh, Richard Bachman, Bachman is very old now, but he's still alive as far as I know. And uh, I, I would recommend it to you because what, what you can do with this, and I do this sometimes here, this is something you can give to someone. You can just say, look, you know what? Okay, I know maybe I can't argue with you very well, or maybe I don't know everything that I need to know, but this book is a great introduction to the life of Jesus Christ. And he has a, he has a, a, a chapter there. He has a portion that's on the virgin birth. And the reason is because, the reason I talk about this is because sometimes people and um, even institutions, even denominations can get a little fuzzy about this. It happens in our culture you know, the virgin birth can begin to be thought of as a, a metaphor, maybe a nice idea that makes people feel hopeful. And it can become something that oftentimes Christians, and we don't like to say this, but deep down inside we feel a little bit embarrassed because it just seems so crazy and so different. And how do we explain it? And to say that it's a historical claim that it happened in space and time. And so I, I want to talk about that. Here, this is a, a quote I got from an official of a denomination. I'm not going to say what denomination it is. It's one that every one of you would know. But this statement refers to 
the virgin birth, and it offers an explanation of what the leaders and the theologians of this denomination really believe. And here it is. There is a diversity of opinions on the issue, but there remains a diversity of opinion over whether there should be a diversity of opinion. Don't you like groups that just take a stand? They put a stake in the ground. Here I stand. We're all not sure, and we're not sure whether we should be sure, so we're not sure. That's kind of what they're trying to say there. That's, uh, but it's interesting because I, I read this a while back. You know, it used to be, and I'm dating myself, probably the most famous interviewer in the world was a man named Larry King. He had a TV show that he interviewed thousands and thousands of people over the years. And they asked him one time, who would you most like to interview if you could, anybody? And he said, Jesus. And they said, okay, if you were to interview Jesus, what would you ask him? And Larry King said this. He said, the first thing I would ask him was, were you really born of a virgin? Because if so, that changes everything. That's the, that's the pivotal moment in history, if that is true. And Larry King, even he, he could recognize this is so key. This is something that could change everything because it's important. It would show why he's such a special human being among so many other things in his life. And why did the people around him believe that it was true? What was the specialness that they saw? Now, I know people say, okay, those were pre-scientific times. They, uh, they didn't really understand. We're more sophisticated nowadays. And um, first thing is, that's a little bit arrogant when you think about it. But here's the second thing. People in ancient times really did understand where babies came from. Just so, just so we get that straight. They had a pretty good grasp on how that worked and the mechanics. Uh, no, I'm not going. Okay, so there, I, read, I came across this story a while ago there, this, that I thought was pretty cute. That was about this. A little six-year-old girl comes to her mom. She says, where did I come from? And her mom gets a little flustered and a little embarrassed, and so she kind of goes through this explanation of birds and bees and women and eggs and seeds and kind of works her way through this and finally says to her daughter, do you understand? And her daughter goes, no. Jenny says she's from Richmond. Where am I from? <laughs> and this is, in those days, people understood how babies came about, right? It's not like, it's not like uh, they, didn't, they didn't have that figured out because if they didn't, we wouldn't be here. I kind of thought that was funny at first and then I realized that was a waste of time to say that. But in ancient religions, in the days of Jesus, there were stories of heroes like Hercules or Perseus who were a result of, of, of some of the Greek or Roman gods getting together with a human mother. And people have always thought that, that maybe that kind of was where Christians got this idea about Jesus' birth that was borrowed to lend a little more credibility in the Mediterranean world. But here's the thing. The, dim, the presentation of Jesus is, is totally different than what we see in many of these um, myths that we see around around the, the Greek gods, partially because it's a whole new genre. When you start reading the four gospels, it's hard for us to understand this. A lot of people think these are like historical fiction, the four gospels. But the thing is, the genre of historical fiction didn't come about until over 1,000, 1,500 years later. We would have to be saying that these four gospels were written by four different people in, in different areas and they all came up with a new genre that was exactly the same all by themselves. It, it, it's, it's almost impossible. And oftentimes with these, Greek, uh, with, with these Greek stories, people knew this isn't a history, this is myth. 
This is just something. Let me read you. This is, this is from Luke chapter 1. And I want you to see, this is the genre we're talking about. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who are from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully, understood, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What's going on here? Luke is, is writing this letter. The, the gospel of Luke is a letter to someone, to a, to a Roman. And he's saying, I'm writing up this orderly account. And most scholars agree, Luke is preparing the defense for Paul in Rome. He's, to, he's preparing a lawyerly defense. And so what is he doing? He's writing history. He's saying, I've researched this. I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've gone to all these people. I'm coming up with this idea, this plan. This is what happened. Luke is a historian. And he's writing this probably, most people think this is written around 60 AD. He gets details. I've talked about this before, but he gets details correctly, geographical details, chronological details, things about the census and the ruler. He gets who the governor is. He names the parents. He talks about the circumcision ceremony, the purification rites of Mary. He goes over details that myths never touch. And, and he says these things, he writes these things so that they can be an orderly account. He's saying that Jesus did and said things that no good man or teacher would ever say or do. And this is that idea where this idea, this is that point where this idea of Jesus as a, as a sage, as a, as a wise teacher, it begins to break down because he says things that no good man, no sage, no wise teacher would say. He is a wise teacher. He is a good man, but he often makes statements that are outrageous. He says to the Jewish leaders, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. He proclaims his divinity. This is, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Him saying, I am, is a claim to be Yahweh. He's making this outrageous claim. He's a staggering statement. He's saying, I pre-existed Abraham. He's claiming, I am God. No teacher can say these kind of things and get away with them. No good man would say these things. Or he says, I'm the light of the world. We, we, we go right by that. We don't stop and think how staggering that statement is. We lose sight of what, it would, what that would mean if a human being around us would say something like that. Have you ever tried to say that to your spouse? Don't argue with me. I'm the light of the world. See how that goes. Have you thought about putting that on a, on a, on a dating app? Right? Single, attractive, enjoys good restaurants, long walks on the beach, and one more thing, I'm the light of the world. Swipe, right? Nobody would pay attention. See how many dates you get with that. He claimed to be able to forgive thin, sin. Thin. Sin. I wish you could forgive me. He, he claimed to forgive, be able to forgive sin. That's only God's authority. Only God's authority that he's claiming to have. I love this part. I, I was doing some research here. Rabbis loved, they, they, they loved the Torah. They exalted, they revered the Torah. They would often say the Torah will last forever. All right? And this is what Jesus said. And that was a common saying for rabbis. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. My word will last forever. You see what Jesus has done there? He's saying, yes, you, you revere Torah. Torah will last forever. That's my word. I'm the author of that. 
He's making this incredible claim. His followers came to realize he was no ordinary man. What God did, Jesus did. What God claimed, Jesus claimed. What God was, Jesus understood himself to be. He's totally unique. It starts with the virgin birth and this carries through in, in his whole life. And his disciples didn't think he was just a great teacher. He was a great teacher, but they followed him because he was the most incredible person they'd ever met in their life. There'd been no one like that. And Luke tells us in Acts that in the early church, there were people who had seen Jesus, including his mother Mary, people who knew. And Luke is writing this letter in defense of Paul, and he's saying, you can go back and ask. Those people will confirm what I'm writing. That's, that's an incredible thing for him to say, knowing that in a capital trial it, for, for a Roman citizen, there is a good chance that someone might go back and ask. Someone may just do that to follow up on these things. And he said, no, no problem. You can do that. Why did all these people follow him? Why did all these people vouch for him? Why did these people stake their lives on him? Because they had seen that he was not an ordinary man. He was not, he was God. He claimed to be God. No prophet ever did that before. He claimed to be God. He claimed that the words that those people revered were his words. In, uh, in, uh, in Israel in that time, there was a rabbi just a little bit before Jesus, but he made this saying that I have found here. He uh, was very famous, I guess I should say that, very popular. He said, where two sit together and the words of the law are spoken, be spoken between them, the Shekinah rests between them. This rabbi was saying, when two people get and begin to speak and recite the words of the law, then the Shekinah glory, what is the Shekinah glory? The Shekinah glory is the presence of God. He says, then God is there when people speak the law. Does that sound familiar? This is what Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. Jesus is appropriating that saying and saying it's me. That's who you're talking about when you talk about that. It's an incredible thing. In Islam, Jesus is understood to be a prophet. Not God, just, just a prophet. Because Allah is above us. Allah is up there. He is the great one. And there is this separation between people and earth and Allah. In fact, in Islam, if you were to say that Allah came down in any way or touched the earth or a person in any way, it's called a shirk. It it's, it's literally means an association. It, it's blasphemy to say that. There have been, there have been uh, people put to death for saying something like that. Because for, for people who are Muslim, there is this giant gulf between God and man. And nothing, nothing can bridge that gulf. And in that sense, they're kind of right. There is this giant gulf between God and man. There is this giant gulf in terms of holiness between human beings and between God. It's just in Christianity, we see that God did something about it. In Islam, there, there's no hope for that. It's like this. Um, I was reading a guy, an author, I, I like some of his writings. His name is Lou Smeads. And he was writing about, um, um, kind of talking about Christmas and what Jesus did. And he was talking about friendship, and he said this. He said, there's an unwritten rule of friendship that to be friends with someone, you have to be more or less equal. 
The rich and powerful do not easily make friends with the poor and the weak. He said that's just common in terms of life. And he, and he related that with, he went to, uh, he got his PhD from Ox, Oxford University and he went and he rented a, uh, a, a, a floor of a house and the lady who lived there and her husband had been servants for an English gentleman for about 50 years. Her husband had died. And so she was renting out a floor of her house and he came and said, oh, this will be perfect. He and his wife will, will live here. And she said, that's great because you know, you're going to Oxford you are a gentleman, and you get the top floor. You get the top floor. And he said, well, where, where do you stay? She goes, I will stay in the basement. And he said, well, that seems wrong. You don't have to do that. And she goes, oh, no, that's the right thing to do. And then what he tried to do, he tried at times to maybe bridge that gap. Sometimes he would shovel coal. Sometimes he would clean out the fireplace. He would offer to make tea for her, and she would always say, no, no, no. And finally, he said, why won't you let me help you? And she said, you are a gentleman, and I am not. You live upstairs. I live downstairs. That's the way it is. And I love it because he said, I'm not a gentleman. I'm an American. You know, like those two things. But for her, if you went to Oxford, you were a gentleman. She was a servant. That's the way things are. And he was saying it, 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 it blew him away that there was this, this kind of a class separation that was going on there. Because to her, there's upstairs people and there's downstairs people. He's an upstairs person, he's a gentleman, she's a downstairs person, she's a servant. And he said, you know, if that's true about that, think about how true it is with us with God. God's not just the upstairs person, he lives on the millionth floor in the penthouse. We live in the basement. And yet, he came down. He came down. And this whole sense, because I feel like um, for people who are Muslims, there is this sense of something is not right, I am separated. I am separated by this giant gulf, and that's true. We lose sight of the fact sometimes that God is holy. He never does anything small or petty. He's never done anything evil. He's light. And we feel that. We feel the fear and the guilt that comes with that. Back in the Old Testament, when God appeared on Mount Sinai, the people said to Moses, you go talk to God. Don't. Don't, we can't, don't let him talk to us. We can't go talk to him. It, we'll die. In Isaiah, Isaiah, what does he do? He sees God and he goes, woe is me. I am undone. He said, I'm coming apart at the seams. My body is falling to pieces because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and God, I'm unclean and God is holy. He's holy. He's way up there and I'm way down here, trapped in my mortality, my finiteness, my fallenness, my brokenness my darkness, and I can never, never get up there. And then one day, these angels showed up to some shepherds, and they said, good news. We have good news. God has come downstairs for you. Years ago, I was um, working in a Sunday school when I was in college, and the Sunday school teacher was explaining that Jesus had come down, this good news, that he'd come down, and he'd come down to stay. And there was some little kids, and they were like, and it's just, she was trying to explain to them, you know, he came down and became like us. And this one little kid looks at her and says, do you mean he came down and he brought his toothbrush and his jammies with him? And she said, yeah, he came down to stay 
he came down the stage. And I thought, I got to remember that because somehow that kid got a hold of that just by thinking of his toothbrush and his jammies. But Jesus came down. He came down to where we were, we are. He was born of a virgin. He took on our humanity. He came all the way downstairs. He hung out with the downstairs people. And at the cross, what does it mean? There's no upstairs people anymore. It's just all of us. And he says there's this infinite chasm of sin and darkness between us. God says, I sent my son to take care of that. He bridged it at the cross. And that's why everything changes for us. That's why this morning, we talk about Jesus being born. We talk about the virgin birth. It means everything has changed fundamentally in this world. We can't go on living a normal life because this changes everything. Now, what happens if you follow Jesus Christ? You get in a situation, you cry out in pain with a difficulty that you're dealing with. And what happens? You have a Savior that comes alongside and says, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. What an amazing thought. I mean, when you think about other people, who do they go to with this stuff? They go to friends, maybe. They go to, but all the time, they're going to get people who say, well, I don't know exactly how that... And with Jesus, he knows exactly how it feels. And he, we, with Jesus, we have someone who says, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends now. We, we, think, we think what we need to do is serve more and give more and do better and uh, we'll somehow earn our way upstairs. And, and Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. I'm coming down. I'm coming down. And so then the question becomes for each one of us, okay, so what are we doing with that? How is our life different with that? Because ultimately, your life has to be different with that. Whether it's starting off with, a, with, with a, making a decision for salvation. But often, I know for, for many people here, you'd say, I'm a Christian, Bob. So, what's, so this is it. We stop. We step back. We take stock. What am I doing? How is, where is my life going? What's been creeping in? Are there things that are creeping in that are distracting me from what's important? Are there things that have been subtly moving in that take the place of God in my life? Is there unconfessed sin? Is there a need for repentance? And repentance, again, is this idea of you're going one way, and you turn exactly and go exactly the opposite way. But this is the thing. It's not this miserable, melancholy, oh, I'm such a miserable person, repentance. It's a repentance that is, comes filled with joy, it's glorious because it's turning from dark and moving towards light. Because Jesus is telling us right now, I have good news for you. If you don't know me, I have good news for you. If you do know me, I still have good news for you. There's more. There's more. There's this great joy for you because your Savior has been born. So this morning, Maybe in the next few hours, sometime today, take a little time, just a little time, and think for a moment, so what's going on in my life? Ask God. I love, I love David. He has that prayer. He says, Lord, point out. First of all, he says, Lord, you know my heart. Now, if there's a wicked way, show it to me. Take a moment to think about that. God, what needs to be different? Who do I need to treat different? Is there someone I need to make something right with? Is there something I need to quit? Is there something I need to start? Is there something, Lord, that I can do that will please you? 
in the next week? What could it be? What could it be? And then wait for God. Because here's the thing. If God says nothing, you're fine. You're doing okay. But if God brings something to your mind, then you have something to work with, something to work on. Because we have, because of this Savior, we have good news of great joy that's for us and everyone else around us. And then the question begins, how are we stepping out and touching people's lives with that good news of great joy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for what this means. What this means for our, our lives, but also for everyone in the whole world. What this means for the whole world. Your love shown in the most incredible way. And Father, as we deal with issues sometimes in our lives or issues that we struggle with, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us to work through these things in a way that honors and glorifies you. Help us, Lord, more than anything else to want to become more like your son, Jesus, as we look at his word, at the word that shows him. Father, I pray that we would follow in his footsteps and that we would walk hard to follow him. And God, we thank you for this time, wonderful things going on with family and presence and just joy. But in the midst of this, Lord, help us to understand what is most important here in our lives, not just today, but for this week and this month and this new year that's coming. Father, we pray that we would begin to experience more and more of the joy that comes from following you. For it is in the name of your son that we pray. And on the basis of what he has done, we come to you. Amen.